0: Welcome to the Garden Church Podcast. The following message was previously recorded at the Garden Church in downtown Long Beach, California. Last week, uh, Darren uh, uh, invited us into a conversation, I think very timely. By the way, if you haven't listened to the podcast of last week, if you weren't here, Uh, Even if you were here, I'm going to suggest that it's worth listening to again. It's probably one of the most important and best teachings on on this particular issue of of the disciples of Jesus engaged in the political process that I've ever heard. And I want to invite you to kind of reorient your souls in some ways. I want to kind of build on on that a little bit uh, this morning uh, because, as you know, we've... Thank you, Jesus. Two days left. Um, (laughs) Politics, he defined as the way that we organize our lives together. It's neither positive or negative, but the players in it use it for good or ill. Uh, The truth, as he mentioned last week, is that you cannot not participate in the political process. You are already in it like a fish swims in water. That's the environment within which we live uh, in this this nation of ours or any other nation. Uh, And because we are already in the system, we need to recognize that politics as such only works, as you said last week, uh, for, for uh, for any of us if it works for all of us. And particularly for those who have no voice, who have no vote, who have no power, Um, To be a disciple of Christ, engaged in the political process, means to have a bias towards, a prejudice towards the voiceless, the the ones at the edges, those who have um, limited resource or limited capacity uh, to make their voice heard, especially those who are the most vulnerable. And the tension that he drew last week is one I want to build on today, and that is the tension between the twin kingdoms the dual allegiances that are battling for our souls and that we find ourselves torn between, namely the kingdom of God and the kingdom of this world, the material world that we we, uh, um, are are living in and the kingdom of God that has come and is coming to redeem that material world and to restore it to rights. And so this is the the tension, and and frankly, I, I... For one, I'm very, very glad, grateful for this election cycle over the last two years that we have been running for president of one kind or another, or have been watching people run for president, Uh, for this very simple reason. Um, Finally, we have the politicians we deserve. (laughs) We have a system that is flawed and broken that ought not surprise us then when the two people at the top of the ticket are flawed and broken. We have a system that has summarily dismissed character as qualification while running the flag up the pole of character. Finally, we can put all of that pretense aside and understand that what we really want is power. What we really want is somebody to represent our interests. In other words, the kingdom of the world. And so for us, who are disciples of Jesus, it is an unparalleled opportunity for us to mind our own business, (laughs) to be engaged in what Jesus has called us to be engaged in. Doesn't it strike you as interesting that Jesus made disciples that changed the world under one of the most repressive regimes in the history of the world, a Caesar who called himself God. It didn't seem to bother him very much. He only spoke of him one time, as far as I can tell. And that's the passage we want to look at this morning. So if you have your Bibles, uh, turn with me to uh, Matthew 22. This story occurs in all three of the Synoptic Gospels, signaling, I think, its importance to our point this morning. The text reads this way. It's a very familiar one. Pharisees went out and laid plans to trap Jesus in what he said, in his words. So they sent their disciples along with him, along uh, with the Herodians. Teacher, they said, I love this. Talk about spin. We know that you are a man of integrity. We know that you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You're not swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. Anybody, your BS detector starting to ping? (laughs) Yeah. Tell us then, what is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Jesus, knowing their evil intent, said, you are. Hypocrites, why are you trying to trap me? Show me the coin used for paying the tax. So they brought him a denarius. He asked them, whose image is this? And whose inscription? They said, Caesar's. So he said, well, give back to Caesar what's Caesar's. But give to God what is God's. When they heard this, they were amazed, so they left him and went away. This passage begins with probably the unholiest of marriages in all of scripture. You'll notice that the first uh, text that we looked at said that the Pharisees, who were charged with the purity, or they believed they were charged with the purity of Judaism, uh, with protecting Judaism in such a way that Messiah could come back to a pure people. This is why they paid so much attention to Sabbath, to purity laws. Uh, to disciplines of fasting and so on and so forth. These were their ways, these boundary markers by which they made the way of the Lord clear and obvious. If all of Israel, one of the sayings was, kept Sabbath for one day, Messiah would come. So they're very anxious about this. And any time a new rabbi bubbles to the surface... They send out representatives to find out where this rabbi fits into their system of preparation, the purity of Judaism. And of course, Jesus, aware of this, um, uh, uh, plays the, the system to the point that he deliberately sets himself up to die because of his opposition to their system. It did not occur to them that while they were preparing the way for Messiah, that in fact Messiah was already there. They were blinded from the Jesus they saw by the Jesus they wanted. So also often are we. So the Pharisees, charged with the purity of Judaism, charged to keep Judaism pure against Roman incursion, are now finding themselves in an unholy alliance with the Herodians, who are, as you can imagine, supporters of Herod. Herod, remember, the puppet installed by Rome to exercise Roman authority in Judea. You got the tension. So anxious are they to eliminate this threat to their religious power that they are willing to align with the Herodians against him. The enemy of my enemy is my friend. So they're going and they're going to test Jesus, and here's the test that they have devised. First, they do the, the spin zone. We know that you're a man of integrity, you teach the word of God in accordance with the truth. Uh, you aren't swayed by others because you know pay no attention to their. So tell us. What is your opinion? Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? They believe that they have gotten a foolproof trap. If he says we ought to pay the tax to Caesar, then the citizens of Israel, for whom that tax is a reminder of Roman repression and their subjugation, will label Jesus as a consorter with Rome. If, on the other hand, so that's the Pharisees' side, Jesus says, no, we should not pay the tax, then those who believe that compliance with the demands of Rome, cooperating with Rome, is necessary for our political life together, will call him out as treasonous, a the Herodians. So here's the trap. Yes or no? What's the answer? And Jesus, of course, knowing their intent, which was as obvious as it could possibly have been, says to them, oh, silly people, what do you you think you're doing? Show me a coin. Now, what is fascinating is that they had a coin to show him. Religious Jews were forbidden from carrying the denarius. Why? Because, and then he he sets them up. I just love this guy. (laughs) Whose image is on the coin? And notice he uses the word that would have echoed in the minds of every good Jew, have no graven image. Whose image is on that coin that you so conveniently have in your pocket, and you ought not be having at all. And whose inscription? Well, the answer to Jesus' question, which nobody bothers to provide him because they know that he's setting them up for something but apparently can't quite figure out what he's doing, the image is that of Caesar Tiberius. The inscription is, Son of of the divine. Kingdom of the world. Clear, evident, crisp, encapsulated in a currency. Jesus says, fine. Give back to Caesar what belongs to Caesar, what is marked with his image, what is labeled by his inscription. Give that to Caesar. But what is marked with the image of God, what is marked by identity, by the inscription of God, give to God. Anybody here marked by the image of God? Apparently not. (laughs) Well, then, (laughs) you see what he's doing? He's threading the needle and saying to them, friends, we're going to be in a political process. We're going to be part of a system of governance, right? So salute the flag. Pay your taxes. Be engaged in process to the degree that you're able. It's neither here nor there but make sure that you recognize that that's not where your heart allegiance lies. Your heart has been stamped with an identity, and I need you to recognize that they are not the same. They are not the same. Give to God who what bears his image, namely So in doing this, Jesus is is underlining the, 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 the realities. What does it mean for us then in our current culture to give to Caesar what is Caesar's? And the answer is very similar to what it meant then. Pay your taxes. Be as responsible a citizen as you can possibly be until the demands of the state cross the demands of the kingdom of God. But be very, very clear that will not bring the kingdom of God. No matter who is elected, no matter whether our person is elected, that will not produce the kingdom of God because we're not built for democracy. Democracy is as good a system as there is out there and probably better than most because at least it attempts to spread the power so it does the least damage. But the fact is, we're not built for democracy. We're built for a monarchy. We are built for one king and one king only under whom we align our roles and identities in subservience and submission to him. That's what we're built for. And until that king comes and fully and finally establishes, reestablishes, I should say, his kingdom, we have to make do with the best we can do. But let us be clear, our primary residency is not the kingdom of this world. It is the kingdom of God, which has come and is coming. And that kingdom's ethics need to inform our participation in this kingdom's processes, in this kingdom's politics, in this kingdom's way of life. Every one of you should have, if you don't have printed up yourself, a green card because you're all resident aliens. To the degree to which you are citizens of the kingdom of God, you do not properly belong first to the United States of America. And let us be clear, the United States of America, if it ever was, is not a Christian nation. It is one nation under God in some ways. Thank you, Jesus, for the United States. However, let us not ever make the mistake of thinking that if we just get our guy elected, our gal elected, all will be well with the world. It won't. It won't. What does that mean? That means be involved, be engaged, be informed. Be as objectively informed as you possibly can. But as a citizen of the kingdom of the heavens, remember to pull out your green card every once in a while and remind yourself that you can't engage in the process the way everybody else who is not a citizen of the kingdom of God does. You can't reduce complex issues to simple hashtags, You can't reduce complex issues that are are multiple causation to a single solution. You can't do that. You can't throw people under the bus because they disagree with you. You have to be engaged, but you have to be engaged respectfully, honorably, intelligently. And if you have nothing to say, don't say anything. Not every Facebook post requires a response. Some of y'all need to edit your friend list. Amen, amen. You see, it, it, the kingdom of God invites us into revolution. In fact, what we have taken this morning, communion, is insurrectionist behavior. It is declaring a different allegiance. You wanna change the world? You wanna make a difference? Jesus says, follow me in this. Don't try to be in charge. Find somebody to serve. So when he calls us out of darkness into light, what he invites us to is an awareness that his strategy of the kingdom overcomes, supersedes our tribal loyalties. What do I mean by tribal loyalties? The ways that socioeconomically, culturally, we have defined ourselves. Whether as as, uh, Americans, or male or female, or white, or, 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 we all have our tribes that claim allegiance and the kingdom of God supersedes them all. Before you are male or female, you are image of God. Before you are, Paul's language, Jew or Gentile, you are image of God. Before you are slave or free, wherever you are in the economic scale, you are image of God. Please notice, we're not interested in equality. We're interested in oneness. We are interested, not because that's the only way that we can celebrate the diversity that is present in the body of Christ is if we pursue our common unity in Him. Right? So the kingdom of God supersedes all of those tribal identities, and our first image then is the kingdom of God. If it doesn't, if tribal identity supersedes the kingdom in any of its forms, then sooner or later, when you acquire power, because you're built for it, power's not the problem, it's what you do when you have it, and if you don't submit to the kingdom of God in the use of your power, you will sooner or later begin to use your power to assert your tribal identity. And that will get us exactly where we've gotten ourselves, sooner or later. No, 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 you don't understand. If I were in charge, all would be well with the world. No, it wouldn't. And if you believe that, then you are, of all people, the last one we should put in charge of anything. (laughs) If you don't have an awareness of the fragility of your grip on reality, we ought not give you that much authority or power. Do you see? And, and, and so, so Jesus is, is inviting us to a strategy by which actual change occurs at the DNA level of society, because it's not that he wants to get us out of here. It's that he wants us here to redeem it. This is why the websites uh, promising, you know, easy passage into Canada are not helpful. Do you guys know this phenomenon? It's amazing. It's it's like if so-and-so wins, I'm moving to Canada. They don't want us. (laughs) I've been there. Actually, I am Canadian, and I don't want you. (laughs) And let us be clear, we elected a guy whose chief qualification to be prime minister of Canada is that he's a snowboarder. And his dad was prime minister once. That ought to count for nothing. (laughs) So the parliamentary system, I think, is better than our system here in the United States because it spreads out the crazy. We have two two parties here. You all have two parties. In Canada, we've got 10 or 11. (sighs) They have to figure out how to get along. Because let's also be clear, even if we elect our guy or our gal, we still have a Congress that has been deadlocked for close to 15 years. Come on. Don't you think we should listen to the wise guy? When he tells us, look, guys, here's a passage I'd like you to finish off with me on. How are we all doing? Is everybody okay? Good. So here's Matthew chapter 5. Look at what he says to us loved losers. (laughs) I want you all to be the salt of the earth. Salt loses its saltiness. How can it be made salty again? It's no good for anything except to be thrown out, trampled underfoot. You are the light of the world. A town built on a hill can't be hidden. Neither do people light a lamp and put it under a bowl. Instead, they put it on a stand. They give light to everyone in the house. So, let your light shine before others so they can see your good deeds. See what? Your good deeds and applaud you. No, give glory to your Father who is in the heavens. Salt has two primary properties that Jesus is calling out here. What does it mean for us to be salt of the earth? One thing, preservation. In the ancient Near Eastern world, prior to refrigeration, salt was used as a primary mechanism to preserve foods for consumption later on. So, if you're anxious about the way the country's going, whose job is it to preserve it? It's our job. We're the ones who are supposed to be engaged, absorbed into the fabric of society, working for its preservation much like the children of Israel in exile in Babylon prayed for the success of that city. We are to pray for, work for, engage our efforts in the preservation of this city. That's our job, preservation. Two, the second and arguably, in my view, the most important uh, use of salt in the ancient Near Eastern world was the signing or sealing of covenant, of covenant. Uh, Salt was viewed as value equal to that of gold uh, at many times in the ancient Near Eastern world. And so when a contract was signed, when uh, uh, an agreement was reached between nations, a, a bag of salt was given as a sign of covenant, a sign of contract. Guess who God has given to this world to remind them that he has covenanted to them and has not forgotten them, that he will be faithful to them. Guess who he has given to the world? He's given us. We are to be in the world as God's sign of love, care, affection, and covenant for this world. That is why we have to be holy Holiness is what enables usefulness. That's what he means when he says, what happens if salt loses its saltiness? What happens if holy people who are, whose holiness is instrumental to their usefulness, what if they're not holy? What if they're just like everybody else? Well, they're useless. Second image, light. What's light for? You know this. It's to illumine. But notice the second image. So our task, by the way, is to shine, not not judgmentally, not condemningly, but in a way that models by our very lifestyles, because light is assertive to the degree that it is passive. Life doesn't go anywhere. It shines on things, right? And so illumines. It uncovers. It provides a standard. You want to illumine the nature of marriage. Guess how best to do that? by living your own marriage in a way that shines a light, that provides a standard of excellence that invites people into imitation. Not judging what they're doing, but inviting them when that breaks, as it inevitably will, a new model of how a marriage relationship actually works. Does that make sense? And you, you, we, you run down the list of sexuality, finances, relationships, uh, employ- all the way down the line. Let the light shine. Let the light shine. Model another and a better way to live in any and all of those situations and circumstances. Number two, light also serves, city on a hill, to provide comfort to those who are in the dark. You found yourself driving on a a lonely, dark highway at nighttime through the Midwest. And you come up over a horizon. There on the horizon are the lights of the city to which you are attending. There is a lift of spirit. There is a a sense of home. That's what the church is supposed to be to the world, a light on a hill, a city that cannot be hidden. Hidden. That's why I love working with the garden so much. Now notice, no big deal righteousness here. No, no placards, no protests. We're just engaged. We're just present. We're, observed, we're absorbed into the culture and into the society. So we, among all people, don't need to run around like our hair's on fire. As if we're really anxious about the outcome of the election. we got stuff to do. And the stuff we've got to do has not changed and will not change depending on who's elected on Tuesday. We have work to do. And if Jesus can make disciples under Caesar, we can make disciples under Hillary or the Donald. <laughs> Amen? Are you in? Because yeah. frankly, friends, you've got nothing better to do. <laughs> Hope you heard what I said. You have nothing better to do. Let's pray. Thank you for listening to the Garden Church podcast. For more information about the Garden Church, visit thegardenlb.org.